From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 253 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host and good friend, John Sakari. Well, John, welcome back. Thank you. Welcome back to you as well. Yeah, yeah. So had a nice little hiatus. We'll talk about that afterwards. But otherwise, you're doing well? Pretty good, yeah. Things are going well. If I don't lose electric here in Florida with the storms (laughs) and you having storms in California, we should be fine. Yeah, yeah. Unusual. Like I was saying before the show, we were upper mid to upper 90s last week. This week, 50s and 60s, and we have a huge (sighs) thunder, lightning, rainstorm rolling through right now. So. so odd. I think that that heat builds it up and and makes it strong. But now you're saying it's cold. So yeah, yeah. It's it's weather's been weird the last few years. Getting very midwestern. Yeah. And where they where said it would are. change. I remember when I was a kid in school, they said the weather would change like that. Yeah. Well, when I was a kid, they of course were saying how the uh, the polar ice cap was going to mm-hmm. get so big. They were they wanted to use nuclear bombs to try to melt it. Oh God! Because they said we were going into a second ice age. Ugh. So that's why I'm skeptical about everything they say <laughs> these days. I agree. <laughs> anyway, so well, John, do you have a favorite classic Disney animated film? Hands down, Snow White. Ah, uh, why? Something about the Wicked Queen and her animation, especially when she's going down the stairs into the laboratory. I love watching the way her cape mm-hmm. uh, hugs the staircase. I could watch that scene over and over and over. Her transformation, but also Snow White, the story, just, uh, I don't know. There's something very magical about that. Oh, I agree. She's the original Disney princess, too. 100%. She set the standard. For it all. And we talked about in our series of we've been doing one of our ongoing series has been doing the animated films. And, you know, we started with uh, Alice comedies. We've talked about the history of Mickey Mouse, the history of Donald Duck, the history of the silly symphonies. And, and so, and also Snow White. We did a series on the making of that film. So if you have not heard those episodes, you might want to go back. And because we are continuing that series today, we are going to start talking about the history of my favorite animated Disney classic, and that is Pinocchio. I just think it is so lush and, and the backgrounds and the, yes. the everything is just so um, beautiful. The details in there it was really that and Snow White. They, they sort of stand on their own with the artistry and the details and, and everything that was lavished on those yeah. two films. We really didn't have never seen that again in, in it's, films. You, it's funny. That. You say, you say the details. The first thing I noticed when I just put it on for a second, I think I saw Pinocchio about 
a year ago in its entirety. Just for this now, I went back and looked, and the first thing I thought of was when you see a background like the clocks in the toy shop and stuff. Mm-hmm. They are. It's really amazing. They no, nothing was phoned in. It was really done with yeah. with passion. A lot of good special effects. We'll talk about those. <laughs> um, and of course, the song. The song. <laughs> oh. w- the, this was monumental in Disney history. Was when you wish upon a star, which is the theme song for the Walt Disney Company. Chimney uh, Cricket. You know, uh, is probably other than Mickey Mouse is probably the other one most associated with especially the Disney parks, yep. but was also made appearances as we talked about. And we talked about, you know, the wonderful world of color and, and all that. He was sort of a, he appeared on there several times. So, you know, um, just so much from this film really resonates today. And so, so that's why we're going, we're going to start talking about it now. A lot of people may not know that the very first screen adaptation of Pinocchio was released in 1911. That's just 28 years after the original book was published as a series in an Italian children's magazine. It was a 45-minute Italian um, silent film that shows Pinocchio portrayed by a fully grown man in a clown costume with a long-nosed Geppetto. I mean, it it's, you know, outrageously long nose. And as soon as Geppetto finishes carving the puppet, he wildly rampages through the village square. So, so that was the film. <laughs> wow. First. Why, why, why was Geppetto having the long nose? I don't know. I thought that was curious too. It was just the way they decided to portray him. So very strange. Now it wouldn't be until 1940 the same year the book rights reverted to the public domain before another big screen adaptation would hit theaters. Walt Disney wasn't the first filmmaker to attempt to make an animated feature based on Pinocchio. An Italian studio attempted to produce one in 1936, but never finished. So Walt was the first one to succeed. So after the success of 1937 Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Walt Disney and his studio, they were finally free of financial debts that had hounded Walt since the 1930s. And Walt told an interviewer, quote, when Snow White hit, we realized we were in a new business, unquote. So the unprecedented success of Snow White confirmed Walt's vision for animation. And it allowed him to pursue his vision for more extravagant animated films. So in 1938, the profits of Snow White were still rolling in. And it enabled Walt and Roy to place a down payment on 51 acres in Burbank, where Walt constructed a state-of-the-art animation studio based on his designs. And at the same time, work on animated films continued. So originally... I don't know if you knew this, John. Originally, Walt had planned for Bambi to be the studio's next animated feature. So, yeah, but however, Walt believed his animators needed more instruction to draw and animate realistic forest animals, especially after Snow White. Um, he felt it didn't reach the level of realism he wanted for Bambi. So he swapped it out for Pinocchio and put all his focus on developing that film. So Walt was captivated by the story and saw it as an opportunity to exceed the beauty of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. 
So this was not a little fable, but an extravagant story with more artistic possibilities than Snow White. So in an interview when the film was released, Walt said, quote, Every character in the story is ideal for adaptation to the medium of animation. After all, it's the only way you could bring a live wooden puppet to the screen, not to mention a talking cricket no bigger than a split second, a wishing star that turns into a beautiful fairy, and a monstrous and unbelievably villainous whale who swallows most of the cast in the course (laughs) of the story, unquote. And that's what Walt always wanted. He always... He felt animation should depict things that you couldn't film in real life in live Makes action. perfect sense. Yeah. yeah. And so, of course, now that's changed with computer graphics and special effects, as we're seeing with the remakes, that, um, you know, and that, um, yeah, you, now you can do some of these things in sort of quasi-live action, you know. Sort of, yeah. Yeah. Now, Walt believed audiences would embrace Pinocchio even more than Snow White, so there was nothing to hold back his vision. Every story idea would be considered, no effect would be too lavish, and the resources were unlimited. Walt's imagination was unleashed. Now, Ward Kimball recalled, quote, We finished Snow White and we said, ha, we know how to do features. And everybody went into Pinocchio with this great load of confidence. Boy, six months later, we found out, and Walt found, that what you learn in one picture doesn't necessarily work on the next picture. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. We're going to learn that they had all kinds of um, challenges with Pinocchio. So. And one of the problems, one of the challenges was that the story of Pinocchio provided unlimited possibilities. The original novel by Carlo Collati featured numerous experiences and stories of which only a few could be chosen to fit into the length of the film. This provided a challenge to the story team and artists to choose the one approach best suited for an animated film. Watt was open to all options and reviewed all suggestions, tested them, discarded some, and developed others. It was all trial and error. By the spring of 1938, Walt and his team had developed a rough continuity as a starting point for production. The 1937 outline was very much different from what was settled on in 1938. The 1937 outline had two distinct problems the unsympathetic personality of Pinocchio, and the absence of a cricket. Walt was well aware of the issues with the personality of Pinocchio. In Carlo Collati's original Italian serial novel, Pinocchio was a mean-spirited wooden boy, which meant that in addition to altering his personality, the artists had to find a way to make him visually appealing. In one of the early story meetings, Walt said, quote, people know the story, but they don't like the character, unquote. So despite this, Walt worked on character development of the puppet and even suggested ways to build up his bratty personality. Walt also suggested unruly behavior to make him more mischievous. One of Walt's suggestions was to have Pinocchio come to life when Geppetto and the cat were asleep 
and he wakes them up with a bunch of practical jokes, terrifying the poor cat. So another idea was to have Pinocchio come to life as he is being carved. And this is how it was in the novel. And heckling Geppetto with wisecracks. Walt felt these antics would win audiences over to Pinocchio's side. I'm so know. glad none of this happened. I know, because I, I don't know. I don't think that would have made me... um. No. You know, sort of warm up to this. No, I would have got out the chainsaw. (laughs) (laughs) That's the modern version. Is that the (laughs) Disney Plus version? (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) With the December 1939 target date looming, Walt assigned directors to each of the sequences, and directors began to make their animation assignments. Soon the artists were providing pencil sketches of scenes for Walt to review in the sweat box. And uh, the sweat box for folks who, who don't know or don't recall was this little room where they would watch the dailies. And at the Hyperion studio, it was a tiny room. Only a few of them could fit in this room and there was no air conditioning. So by the time they got out of there, especially with Walt, uh, let's just say critiquing, um, the film, which sometimes was very direct uh, with about the quality of animation or the quality of the story or the direction and all that, the artists were literally sweating. And so it got the nickname, the sweat box, and it just stuck. When they moved to the, uh, you know, to the Burbank studio, of course, it was a much larger room. It was a small theater where they watched these things. They still called it the sweat box. And a lot of it was just because they would sweat as Walt. Um, we're wondering about what Walt was going to say about the dailies. <laughs> so as production progressed, Walt felt increasingly uneasy about the story and of Pinocchio. Problems with the puppet's personality affected the whole film and created increasingly more problems with the story. In June of 1938, Walt was so unhappy with early attempts at the character, which he felt were too puppet-like and unrelatable, he halted production to reconfigure the puppet and work on the story. Everything that had been created by the story team and artists were scrapped, and 2,300 feet of animation was discarded. Wow. I think Walt, I think Roy was, was on, on vacation or, or traveling on business in Europe and Walt telegrammed him this information. Oh. <laughs> Cause I, I, when I was reading about this, Roy, Roy said, yeah, Walt sent me a telegram saying they've discarded 2,300 feet of animation. <laughs> I wonder if we could find that anywhere, if there's references to it or anything. Yeah. I don't know. I, I know that Roy talked about it, but, um, that's a lot of money. That, oh, yeah. that Walt tossed. But Walt felt it was cheaper and more rewarding to scrap what had been done rather than trying to fix it. Not everything was tossed out. <clears throat> Much of the overall plot structure, the story, and, and some gags were kept and reshaped. The writers took several months to rework the personality of Pinocchio so that he would be more sympathetic. Animator Milk Call focused on drawing Pinocchio as a little boy rather than a puppet, with only his nose and angular posture indicating his wood-carved origins. So it called it as he reversed the design process for Pinocchio. Instead of making a puppet look like a boy, 
he made a boy look like a puppet. This design with very few changes was accepted by Walt after 18 months of designing and then production recommenced. Call's model for the character eventually became the Pinocchio we know today. As as Pinocchio's personality changed, so did the story and the characters who would interact with him. This was when the talking cricket appeared in story development. But do you know what they, when they decided they needed the sidekick, do you know what they, they recommended first? I read this in one article. No, go ahead. What would, what would most irritate something made out of wood? A termite? Exactly. No. Yes. <laughs> That's terrible. To mm-hmm. eat the child. <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> wow. That that was, uh, the, the Walt didn't go with that one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Walt. <laughs> yeah. The cricket was a supporting character in the original book that Pinocchio kills with a mallet and, <laughs> and later reappears as a ghost in several sequences in the book. Wow. So. So the design of the cricket was assigned to Ward Kimball, and it was his job to take what Kimball described as what he called an ugly insect and transform him into a lovable sidekick. The addition of the cricket would have a significant impact on the film. You think? <laughs> yeah. Um. So when time came to name the new cricket character, everybody around the studio sent in names like Abner or Marmaduke or Cedric. But Walt said, why not name him Jiminy? Everybody knows that expression, Jiminy Cricket. The name was a natural and it stuck from that moment. Now, Jiminy Cricket, we don't use it today, but back in the day, back then, it was a commonly used exclamation of surprise that, and it had been used before and after Pinocchio. It, we talked about Snow White, John being your favorite. Jiminy was heard in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. When the dwarfs are hiding behind trees, they exclaim Jiminy Crickets. Oh my gosh, that's right. Yeah, I remember that now. Where I really noticed this when I was a little boy was his name being said by Judy Garland. Now, once in a film I've not seen, listen, darling, in 1938, but again, in the 1939 film Wizard of Oz, she Hmm. says Jiminy Cricket. And that I thought I didn't understand when I was a boy. That was something people you know, said right, out right. loud when they were surprised. But yeah, when you rewatch The Wizard of Oz and Dorothy says that. So, wow. Yeah. In the beginning of the Brave Little Taylor short featuring Mickey Mouse, when the villagers hear Mickey say he's killed seven giants, or they think that's what he's saying, um, they use that expression. And another one of my favorite films, Peter Pan, Michael exclaims Jiminy when he flies for the first time with Peter Pan. Wow. In Atlantis, the lost empire. I, I, I can't remember if Craig liked this film or despised it. I know we've talked about it, but in Atlantis, the lost empire, Milo exclaims Jiminy Christmas. Also, Jiminy's name is featured in two Pixar films. The first is A Bug's Life, when one of the ants spots Hopper coming from a distance. The second is Up, when a newsreel announcer is talking about Charles Muntz. Hmm. So, uh, so 
maybe we need to we need to reintroduce this back into our vocabulary instead of people swearing they can say Jiminy Crickets. <laughs> so let's start a campaign to do that. Now you probably have noticed there's nothing particularly insect-like about the finalized Jiminy. Uh, outside of the broad planes of his face, even his antenna look more like a hair than a piece of insect anatomy. It took Kimball several attempts to create the character. Just as with Pinocchio, the answer lay not in what the character physically represents, but how audiences should respond to that character. Jiminy is a figure of friendship, steadfastness, and warmth, and his design reflects that from his big, trusting eyes to his perpetually forward-leaning posture. And I, I did hear in an interview, and I was researching Ward Kimball um, years ago. He talked about, because Jiminy Cricket is really the character he's probably most known for. And he talked about that. And he said how he got the idea to start making him like a little man was because when he and Walt would talk, Walt had lost an uncle. Uncle had passed away, whom as a boy, Walt loved. And Walt would, and, and, Walt would just tell him stories about what he remembered about his uncle and, and the qualities of the uncle. And Ward used those conversations to inspire him to draw Jiminy Cricket. And he felt one of the reasons Walt took to Jiminy Cricket so much in, in terms of its look and the personality was because Ward tried to base so much of it on what Walt shared about his uncle. That's great. Now, in another interview, Kimball reminisced about designing Jiminy Cricket. And he said, when Walt said I was in charge of the cricket, I said, this should be easy. I will see what a realistic cricket looks like. However, when he realized how intricate a real cricket is with its six legs and antenna, Kimball knew he needed to make Jiminy look different. So he said, I kept eliminating all of the appendages, the feelers, and the sawtooth legs and arms, and I kept at it until finally Walt said, I can live with that. But Ward said, it's not a cricket, it's a blob. (laughs) It's a little man creature with no ears, and he wears little English outfits, and the only reminiscence of cricket wings are the tails of his coat. (laughs) Kimball said that Cliff Edwards, who portrayed Jiminy, had a way of talking to Pinocchio. So we just animated to that voice. That became the personality, and that was a lucky marriage of visual design and the sound of his very friendly voice. Kimball also said, Walt Disney was a great actor. He would get up. He would be carried away with the characters. He would get on Pinocchio. He would act out, and our jaws would drop. So, and they they said that about Walt acting out Snow White. The yes, when he too. did they The said, Witch, remember? Yeah, yeah. And he said Walt yeah. was just a great, great actor. The tone of the film was also undergoing significant changes. The film became much more sophisticated and mature than Snow White. This is most obvious in the scene where Pinocchio meets the troop of marionettes. In the book, the marionettes were alive like Pinocchio, but still on strings. And the whole book, if you've not read it, it's a whole metaphor for um, 
communism and socialism rising in in fascist Italy. It was like a prelude to that. So everything was a metaphor for that. So I'm assuming that like live people on strings was probably how they were captured by society or or something like that. So um, makes sense. But that's really what that film was about. Just like all the fairy tales, Grimm's and Hans Christian Andersen, all that were all really little moral plays, um, teaching children how they should behave or frightening them into how they should behave. Right. Um, that that's the whole story. Of Pinocchio is is that. So um, the original story. So this idea was kept in the 1937 outline for the film, but the living puppets were phased out. The finished film would be on what on a quote realistic plane of fantasy unquote as a tale about a fairy who brings a wooden puppet to life about boys who turn into donkeys and characters who walk breathe and speak underwater but all of this is depicted in a realistic manner walt would later refer to this as the plausible implausible which is fantasy that becomes even more compelling because it is grounded in the recognizable realities of daily life. You know, things like when they're walking underwater, you can see them pushing against the weight of the water, you right, know, things right. like that. So even though they could breathe underwater, you still had those realities of the pressure of water and moving through water. And Walt would do a whole episode on this in A Wonderful World of Color that was called The Plausible Impossible. It's probably one of the stronger episodes that he did on animation. So I guess as long as it's anchored in some reality, you can still accept it, even though it's ridiculous. Exactly. That's exactly what the concept is. As work on the film progressed... Many story ideas were tossed out, including a scene where Geppetto shows off his new puppet to schoolchildren as they pass by his window, and a scene where the newly alive Pinocchio tries on clothes, and another scene where he learns to walk. And then there's the grandfather tree. There had been an elaborate scene in which Geppetto explains Pinocchio's family tree, which was a noble pine in an attempt to give Pinocchio pride in his family. As Geppetto recited a very long sequence about the grandfather tree, and it's all in rhyme, all that, Pinocchio visualized the story in his imagination for the audience. So the tree would be humanized as a metaphor for Geppetto. And the birds fluttering around the tree would carry wooden toys similar to the ones in Geppetto's workshop. They also had suitcases. And in their suitcases, they had materials for making wooden nests. The birds also had a musical interlude in which they would whistle a few bars of a harmonized song, almost like a barbershop quartet. And this sequence remained in the picture till the very end. And Walt really liked it. He thought it was funny and visually it was very beautiful, but he felt it slowed down the story and it was cut. I, I, this has to survive somewhere, I would think. I don't know. You know, a lot of stuff just gets thrown out. They had to reuse the. They, uh, this is the, the day when they washed celluloid. the cells and reused them again. Yeah. So I don't know. I've not. It's not like the soup eating scene in Snow White. Right. Some That's of exactly. It did survive some of the the um, hand animation, the pencil sketches, and pencil animation where they could recreate it. I've not ever seen anything like that. I've seen sketches of like the grandfather tree and stuff, but not 
the sequence, um, you know, the whole sequence. Before the story was changed to make Chimney Cricket the conscience of Pinocchio, the puppet received most of his guidance from the Blue Fairy. She cautioned him not to be distracted by temptation and to maintain focus on his objectives, which she summed up with the words, straight ahead. For a while, this was planned to be a song, straight ahead. It also provided a gag in the scene where Pinocchio goes to school. He keeps thinking straight ahead. But when the path begins to wind, Pinocchio continues straight ahead and traverses the countryside with lots of little gags with animals he encounters along the way. But this scene was replaced with the one in which he meets Honest John and Gideon. And this, of course, is a major turning point in the film. So Jiminy Cricket, Jay Worthington Fowlfellow, who's also known as Honest John, and Stromboli are essentially the creations of Walt and his team. And they may be the most interesting of three-dimensional characters in the film. Now, Geppetto being swallowed by a whale remained in the film, but we meet him and Figaro when they're already in the whale. But in early versions of the film, there is a sequence showing how Geppetto was swallowed by the whale. But Walt felt this would give more meaning to the sequence when Pinocchio is walking along the ocean floor because we would already know what Pinocchio will face. This sequence got pretty far in production with some of it being animated and they even recorded the voice dialogue for it. But as the story was streamlined, this sequence was eliminated as being a necessary exposition. So for a time, Walt and his story team considered including some of the scene as flashbacks when Jiminy Cricket is reading the letter from the Blue Fairy explaining Geppetto's fate. But ultimately, the scene was scrapped. Walt had no problem scrapping things if he felt it didn't propel the story along. Which has to really take a lot of... uh uh, discipline, because I know if you create something, especially as an artist, you, the, the thought of cutting it is just horrible. The fact that he had the discipline to do it probably yeah. was very good. And the savvy, but it was hard on the animators who had put in, and the sure. artists who put in so much time into those sequences, and then it gets cut. Uh, so Plus, at this time, they were paid by the foot of film. Re- that got created. Wow. So if they contributed a lot to the film, their paycheck was a little bigger. But if their scenes got cut, then wow, you yeah. know, so uh, that that would be it. You'd get a you'd get a pay cut there. So now as work continued, there was much discussion as to how Pleasure Island, also referred to as Booby Land, would be depicted. Of course, in those days Booby was someone who was silly or a dunce or not very smart probably has it represents something else today probably good reason they didn't keep that name yeah um for a while there was even another land called bogey land so now booby land would be a place of ice cream candy and somewhat naughty fun and bogey land was the dark mirror image of it as boys escaped, they would encounter Boobyland and overindulge on ice creams and sweets and burn teachers in effigy. Then in Bogeyland, they'd encounter an ice cream avalanche, a castor oil lake, and then be pursued by a ten-headed school teacher through an alphabet snowstorm. 
So Walt envisioned Bogeyland as a place where Pinocchio learned about the negative effects of overindulgence. This idea didn't last long, and the writers developed Pleasure Island to be a little more nightmarish. Another scene that was dropped was one between Pinocchio and the coachman. After Pinocchio escapes from Bogeyland, later Pleasure Island, the coachman spots him and gives chase with bloodhounds because he's afraid Pinocchio will inform the legal authorities of the coachman's villainous actions. Now, so this basically became a prison breakout scene with searchlights and sirens and guns. And when the character of Lampwick was added, he escaped with Pinocchio and sacrificed himself so that Pinocchio could escape. This would have been a very intense scene had it remained in here. As writers developed this sequence, the pursuit became more and more vicious so you know with like dogs tearing at them and i mean it was it was really horrible so when booby land and bogey land were replaced with pleasure island the writers rewrote the sequence so that the coachman sees pinocchio diving into the water to escape and the coachman opens underwater cages housing hungry sharks to pursue pinocchio i guess he kept these sharks in cages in case of escape yeah Then the coachman pursued Pinocchio in a motorboat. And when Pinocchio reaches the mainland with Chimney Cricket, the coachman would continue his pursuit with bloodhounds as Pinocchio and Jiminy battled through swamps, rainstorms with thunder and lightning, and a blizzard to get back to Geppetto's cottage. In another version, the coachman sees Pinocchio's escape and hires the fox and cat to bring back Pinocchio dead or alive. (laughs) The fox suggests the coachman seek out Geppetto's home and then points him in the opposite direction. The fox and cat would then run in the right direction to Geppetto's home to capture Pinocchio and claim the reward. But they end up running right into the arms of the law instead. <laughs> so, so many stories. I know. Well, that, and that wasn't unusual were stories, you know, ideas. What was open to any idea? So, and they were also still, I think, having a hard time determining what are we keeping in this film? What are we keeping from the original story? What's new? You know, all that. I think they were still um, going back and forth with all of that. Yeah. And at some point, somebody had to say, Pinocchio needs to be a victim. He needs to be a, a somebody who wants to learn the difference between right and wrong, but he's a victim and he's not this bratty kid that it started out. I'm so glad that he's not. Yes, yes. Otherwise, I think the whole film would have failed. Would have failed, so. yeah. Ultimately, all these ideas were discarded and Pinocchio and Jiminy escape unseen from Pleasure Island. And in the end, the villains remain uncaptured and they're are supposedly out there looking for more innocence to fall into their evil clutches. So so we don't see the crime doesn't pay scene. Yeah, which is unusual. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Pinocchio's underwater scene is integral to the film, and the writers developed a much larger story for this sequence. As Pinocchio encounters all sorts of fish as he looks for Monstro, he comes upon a sunken ship and decides to explore it. Within the darkness of the ship, he encounters phosphorescent fish whose beams play like flashlights across his face. These fish also swim away in fear when Pinocchio mentions Monstro. 
And one is so frightened, it swims into an old lantern and becomes trapped. So Pinocchio then uses this lantern with the glowing fish to continue his exploration of the ship. That's a cute little sight gag, I think. Yes. Pinocchio is then pursued by a giant octopus. And in a series of gags played both for suspense and hilarity, the octopus stalks Pinocchio through the ship with the intention of pouncing on Pinocchio. Pinocchio has no idea that this is happening, and he constantly sidesteps any danger. When Pinocchio exits the ship, the octopus disguises himself as a sea plant (laughs) and grabs Pinocchio with his tentacles. And then Pinocchio provides the gag by saying, I'll bet you're not afraid. Tell me where I can find Monstro the Whale. And in fear, the octopus drops Pinocchio and bumps into all kinds of things, all kinds of obstacles as he swims away. Monstro has a name for himself. He does. He has a rep. (laughs) this sequence was further developed with more gags involving sea creatures like lobsters rays and and other types the debate about whether the octopus should be played for comedy or suspense continued for quite a while bill cottrell complained that the sequence ended with pinocchio not being afraid of the octopus and he felt it didn't propel the story Walt thought that playing the octopus for laughs and Pinocchio not being afraid would ensure that the audience isn't frightened. As the sequence was developed and refined, in the early versions, Pinocchio encountered the ocean depths on his own. But in November 1938, Jiminy Cricket was added to the scene, and immediately the tone of the scene was changed, along with a whole new set of visual gags involving Jiminy. By early 1939, the whole scene was reworked and the octopus sequence was cut. But next time you watch Pinocchio, you can still spot him in a group of sea creatures checking out Pinocchio when he enters their ocean realm. I have homework now. Yeah, yeah. Take a look for him. A stage version of Pinocchio ended with him celebrating at his birthday party when he turns one year old as a real boy. The early film outline did not contain this scene, but in the summer of 1938, the writers did consider a similar ending. Pinocchio's transformation into a real boy would take place on the beach after their dramatic escape from Monstro, and then the film would dissolve into a birthday party for Pinocchio. Subsequent outlines had Pinocchio still transforming on the beach before dissolving into an epilogue, with Jiminy saying to the audience, needless to say, they lived happily ever after. Oh, and I got a badge too. And of course, there's a moral. Always is. Listen when you get in trouble and you don't know what to do. Just give a little whistle. As we know, this ending was replaced (laughs) that compresses these elements into one scene in which Pinocchio was transformed at Geppetto's cottage, Jiminy is awarded his badge, and there is a happy celebration. So much better. Yeah. The only thing I never understood, even as a boy and and even now, is, okay, he was a wooden puppet. So how did he drown? Oh, you're 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 now trying to put those real life beliefs into this know, fantasy. The plausible impossible, I <laughs> yes, guess. Yes. Yeah, but that <laughs> always bugged me. Did he get waterlogged? I mean, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh, um, that's funny. Yeah. So, so listeners, uh, let us know what are your thoughts. What, what happened there? 
So anyway, Pinocchio is a mix between the old and the new. Albert Hunter, who helped design Snow White, returned to help the studio's designs. Um, but this was complemented by a new member, Gustav Tengren, who had a big impact on the film's design, especially the street designs in the village. He also, Gustav Tengren also is a huge contributor to the early ideas of Snow White the early mm. concepts. Um, he had been a, a very well-known children's illustrator of books back in the day. And, and Walt and Lillian even bought some of his art and That's all that. Some of it's in the Walt Disney Family Museum now. Um, this film also saw the beginning of the dominance of the nine old men. These were a group of nine animators who are now Disney legends due to their being so skilled and for working with Walt on these early and pioneering films and their names and contributions should be remembered. And they are Les Clark, Mark Davis, Ollie Johnson, Milt Call, Ward Kimball, Eric Larson, John Lounsbury, Wolfgang Retherman, and Frank Thomas, Retherman, I should say, and Frank Thomas. These core animators began to take over from those artists who had established a Disney style of animation in the 1930s. And we've done um, episodes on some of these nine old men. So if you want to learn more about them, you can um, go back. Some of them much more well-known than others. Yes. Like you say Ward Kimball or Frank Thomas to me, I know who they mm-hmm. are. Uh, John Lounsbury? No, not at all. He was very quiet. He... um he made his contributions. He did not do interviews, never wrote down his memoirs, things like that. But he was a significant contributor to the films. So, yeah. Now, Walt was very enthusiastic about Pinocchio and was heavily involved in its production. Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas in their book, The Disney Villain, state how the period of working on Pinocchio was the high point of Walt's involvement with animation and that he was endlessly creative and completely consumed with making it. So in our next episode, our next installment of our history of Pinocchio, we'll go into more detail about the film's production, including how the characters were developed. And again, there there are a lot of firsts in um the film design and production that we will start to get into next time as well. Some of them are now still used today, but now it's time for this week in Disney history. Well, I I think it is my turn. I think you did it on our, you you went first on our, our very last um, episode before the break. So I'm actually tying this in to this week's episode. May 11th, 1883, uh, the sketch artist Albert Herder is born. We just talked about in Zurich, Switzerland. He was the uh, first ever inspirational sketch artist to work at the Disney studio between 1931 and 1942. And Walt saw the potential in his talent. Um, And Herder was already a veteran of the animation business. He had worked, um, he had worked in Germany um, in a, um, in a studio that's no longer around. Well, he worked in Germany and then he moved to New York and he was working at the Bar- Bear Bauer Studio or Bari 
Bauer Studio, I don't know how you pronounce it. They were the first studio to produce a definite series of animated shorts. So he worked on, uh, this is an old cartoon series. It was in the newspapers, a Mutton Jeff. I don't know if you've heard of them, John. Never, but, never. But they were, uh, they were the first basically animated series in there. And, um, but he, he had a heart condition too. And so he, um, didn't want to do anything that was really overly stressful. And he thought that, um, it, it got to be a little too stressful. Um, working there. And so he left that studio in 1918. Then he did a lot of other things. He was, um, he, he designed direct mail as for a printing company. Um, he didn't believe in banks. So he carried all of, all of his cash in his left shoe. Oh, <laughs> At that time, we, he didn't we might be coming back to that if you see what's going on with the banks. I know, really, really. <laughs> um, Anyway, so he would, uh, he would, uh, he, he got into stamp collecting at that point and had a very impressive collection. But he was confident he would be employed by the by Walt Disney. And he had just won several thousand dollars in the Chinese lottery. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So wow. he was hired at the age of 48 and his new colleagues were, um, mostly in their twenties. So that's why they considered him the old man of the studio. And he, um, he was not skilled in personality animation, which was what Walt Disney um, was most interested in. But when he, so he sort of started working as an in-betweener doing special effects. And then Walt, when Walt, Walt hadn't seen Herder's drawings, though, which showed his skills in humorous exaggeration and the humanizing of objects. So when Walt saw those sketches, he realized Herder was a huge potential source of ideas. So he would come in every day to the studio that he employed as an artist, and he would just fill sheet after sheet of drawings to inspire the other artists. He also smoked wow. constantly. They know he always had a cigar in his hand. So, which is funny. So, um, anyway, but he made significant contributions to the visual styles of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Pinocchio, Dumbo, and Fantasia. So he was born May 11th, 1883, and um, he passed in 1942. So quite a character. Yeah, 1883. Wow. Yeah. You really went back. I didn't go back that far. <laughs> and and I, try, I did try to tie it into Pinocchio, but I couldn't find anything too interesting on the date, so I, I didn't I, – I found one that I liked also. May 7th, 1950. The first engine officially runs on the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad, Walt Disney's backyard train at his Carrollwood drive home in Holmby Hills, I think it's said. Yep. Is it Holmby Hills? Holmby Hills. The 2,615 feet of track includes a 46-foot-long trestle and a 90-foot-long tunnel under his wife Lillian's flower bed. Walt controls the track from a special barn that acts as a central headquarters for the railroad's operation. The backyard railroad will be credited with becoming part of Walt's inspiration for the creation of Disneyland. And the actual barn will later be moved to Griffith Park. Now, Mm -hmm. I was at Griffith Park and rode the carousel. Did I see the barn and not know it? You would have had to have gone down the hill a bit. and, And there's an area called Walt's Barn. And it is the barn. When the Walt Disney home was sold, uh, 
um, Diane Disney Miller realized that, that this barn where Walt got a lot of his ideas in as he was tinkering with his trains was a piece of history. And so it was to move to Griffith Park. It was disassembled and moved there. And the, um, the every week, I think it's, is it the third? I have to look it up, but it's like the third Saturday or something of the month it's open. You can go there and you're almost guaranteed to see Disney Imagineers there and see wow. Disney artists, their authors there. But that is the one place you can go to and you can touch things that Walt touched. His tools are there. The benches he worked on are there. Other trains and train models are there it is really this is like as i think um marcy Krikas' mother says this is like the holy grail for disney fans to go here and and then and then um if you do adventures by disney backstage magic they take you there they will open up the barn usually and they even will have the guys who run the the model trains the miniature trains they'll take you on rides Okay, they skipped it for us. For some reason, it either wasn't open or wasn't available. Maybe mm-hmm. six years ago, I I definitely went with the ABD, but I did not see that. And boy, now I want to go back. When you come to California, try to time it when the barn is open. It's, Absolutely. It's very moving to go there, and it's a lot of fun. And then they have other things there as well. They have one of the original um, – the combine car um, that was on the, the original Walt, the Disneyland railroad and they donated it to the Walt, to the Walt's barn group and railroads and they restored it. And it's beautiful. I think it's, is it Ollie Johnston? One of the nine old men who was in the trains that he, who had a backyard railroad, his, his railroad station is there. It's been restored, uh, and there's other little, there's other kinds of memorabilia. How, there as well. how big is this barn? Is it like a house or like a room? It's like a room. It's like a big okay. room. It's not okay. huge. It's not huge, and it's based on the barn uh, on on his family's farm in Marceline, Missouri. He based the design on that. It's just slightly smaller to scale. Awesome. So, but it's it's a magical place. To go to, so that's a great one because we associate trains with Walt so yes. much. And do you know why it went under Lillian's rose beds? I I really don't. I could imagine that she didn't want to ruin her rose rose beds. Well, so. First of all, she was appalled <laughs> by this whole idea <laughs> of having a train in the backyard of their beautiful home they had that's just funny. built. And they say Walt when Walt chose the property. You know, Lillian was envisioning the house. Walt was envisioning his railroad and and how it could run in there. And so, but Lillian said, you know, when I am having tea with my friends, I do not want to see a train going by the window. <laughs> so, so Walt had his legal team draw up a contract for a right of way. Um, for his railroad that, and that's why there's the tunnel. There was the tunnel under the, uh, under the roses. And I bet she um, had her sign it. He did. He had the lean <laughs> sign it. I am amazed she went along with this. I thought if I tried something like that with Carol, oh my gosh, she would have said, are you stupid? 
yeah, there was something mind? else. There's something else in there to sweeten the pot. There was a piece of jewelry, maybe I a nice know. dinner. Something it, else was in there. It might have been. And Lil, I always think Lillian, uh, even though Lillian sometimes comes across as, oh, she would say no to Walt's ideas. You know, she she knew who she was marrying. And she, she probably gave in a lot. And I yeah. think she went along with stuff more than she would let on. It's just the impression I've got from reading about her and stories I've heard about her. But, um, and, and Walt, you know, ideas Walt had, he bounced them off of Lillian. So, um, they say look some of the, Walt's look worst at the Mortimer. Ideas, yeah, yeah, Mortimer. Mortimer. They say some of Walt's worst decisions are when he couldn't talk to Lillian. <laughs> I bet you that's right. So I think, I think a lot of married people can say that about yeah. their spouses. Some of the worst decisions they made is they didn't talk to their spouses or their partners. So anyway, but that's it. That was a good one. That was really good. And you know, John, have you been to the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco? I have not. You can see the actual Carolwood Express there. Uh, the real train. They have reproductions at Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Although at um, over at Wilderness Lodge, they do have a couple. They have some of the original cars that are really there. okay. Yeah, There's I've some, loved that room. Yeah, there, yeah. And then, and then they have, uh, but then they have all of it, including the caboose that Walt built for the train. Wow! So, uh, and then they once had it when they were restoring it. They had it on display where you they opened up the top and they had it on display so you could see inside. Walt did the whole in the interiors too. There was a little pot-bellied stove in there and benches and all of that. Wow! So. Anyway, but yeah, so you have to visit and see the cow. I really Express. do. I really do. And then they have a model that shows how it ran around the house, a, a sort of a diagram and all that too. So anyway, all righty. So we just came back from our April hiatus. Before we went on hiatus, we talked about some of the things we were going to do. John, you're going on a cruise. Tell us about that. Yeah, that was the highlight of my April. April 13th for eight nights of the Fantasy to Bermuda, which, again, is an odd itinerary to leave from Port Canaveral two days, get to Bermuda, stay there overnight, which is the first time I've done that, that on the ship. surprises me that they stayed overnight. They did. Yeah, so it was like, you know, the, the, the ship was your hotel, and at one o'clock in the morning, I didn't. I was an old man that went to bed correctly. <laughs> uh, but if you wanted to, you could walk out and just walk around Bermuda. Mm-hmm. We found Bermuda one of the nicer, richer islands, of course, with, with great culture history. Uh, weird to find out there's no guns anywhere. Even their police don't have guns. Oh, really? And there's, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, and there's very little violence because there's such harsh penalties, especially against tourists. So, you know, you walk around the town and you don't feel like you're being threatened in as you might in some other islands. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was beautiful. And the, just the rocks and the water is so different there. The way uh, just where Bermuda is was great. And then we did still go to Nassau and Castaway. And uh, everything on the fantasy was good. And even Pete Werner thought the meals in the main dining rooms were much better than usual. And for him to say that, it, That's it was high praise. very high praise. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. I didn't see him too much on the cruise. He was doing his own thing pretty much, but he was. He usually does. Yeah, he had a good time. He has his routine usually too. He does. I still try to get him to the shows and he kills me. I don't want to see the darn show. (laughs) Well, he's probably seen them all. Isn't he a Pearl level, Pearl club or something? Yeah, he he, he could probably perform in them (laughs) at this point. (laughs) 
<laughs> I would like to see him as Elsa now that I think about oh, it. That was a quite the role I was envisioning. <laughs> but, yeah. but he, he, he could pull it off if he put his mind to it. <laughs> he could. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. And, and so is this an itinerary they're going to do regularly? Was this a one-off or? You know, I, I know they do it twice, I think, this year, and I have a feeling it's been, it looked very successful. Um, the ship definitely was, you know, I don't know if it was full, but it was, it was popular mm-hmm. and still enjoyable, and I think people liked it. I have a feeling that we're going to see more of them. Oh, good. I hope we do, because I would, I would search them out. Actually. That, that's one that would interesting, because I've never been to Bermuda. So, oh, you got to, been to the Virgin it. Islands stuff, but not Bermuda. So. It's a little different in the lava rock, the volcanic rock. Uh, they call them pink sand beaches. I would say slightly pink sand, mm-hmm. but you can definitely see if you take some of the sand in your hand, some of the pink pieces of shells and stuff that came out of it. So it does have a different look and feel than all the Caribbean islands. Oh, it does okay. feel different. Oh, cool. All right. Well, my big highlight was going to Hawaii. I went to Alani and I had a wonderful time. I was, the last time I was there was seven years ago. And, and like I went on Hawaiian Airlines because it was such a great way to start seven years ago to start the vacation because you had these big full meals and you, they gave you alcoholic drinks, including their signature cocktail, which was not very good. And then they played like, remember the, um, the short, um, lava? Yeah. Yeah. They played that as your landing. Uh, yeah. None of that now. None of that. So I had an early morning flight and, um, you know, and we did get fed, you know, sort of like a breakfast burrito kind of thing. And they said, supposed to hit, supposed to, you know, remind you of the Hawaiian islands and all that. And this (laughs) cuisine does not remind me of the Hawaiian islands at all. So it was okay. The, the flight there fight back. They did give you some, you know, cocktail, but, but when you uh, finally got there, Alani did not disappoint. Not at all. It was gorgeous. It was everything I remember. I have the best room. I was in, because I guess one wing is DVC, and then one wing is rooms, you know, regular Correct. hotel rooms, but they have some DVC villas in it. Correct. And, and, and that's the wing Carol and I had stayed in before. So I didn't know there was a separation. So my friends that I traveled with were in the DVC wing, but I got put on the 16th floor ocean view Ooh. villa it i'm remembering this room name the room number and i'm not <laughs> sharing it with anybody in case you go and i go i want that room <laughs> i'm requesting it but um it was gorgeous i sat out on my balcony all the time and just enjoyed the view and all that um it was just so relaxing we did a lot of fun stuff we uh we did a couple of classes um we did one that was um uh macarons and mimosas where we learned how to make macarons and all that and and we have the recipes for it and everything wow and then and then they kept plying us with different mimosas and i want i wish they'd given us a recipe card for those mimosas because they were very good. One was like a papaya mimosa and all this stuff. Anyway, there were like three of them. And they didn't skimp on the alcohol in these mimosas. And um, and then, anyway, so that was so much fun. But the the it was the head pastry chef. She had been like on, on one of those baking shows in episode eight. She was 
on it. Season eight. She was on it as a contestant. She told us all to scuttlebutt. Boy, <laughs> did she spill the tea or spill the pineapple <laughs> juice, whatever you want to call it. Oh my gosh. She said about 50% of it is real and 50% of it is not. Wow. Where she said, you, you, you film like 14, 16 hours a day, six days a week. But she said that they pretty much determine in the beginning who they want to win. And so then the interviews and all of that are, you know, it becomes clear when how the questions they were asking, how they're setting them up, who they were interviewing, which ones, like if people were not getting along, you know, they would highlight that. But then with the team that did win, it would, they were all happy and wonderful and getting along just fine and not show <laughs> any tension. And then, um, she said, and then, you know, she's from Hawaii. So when they like assigned something, a big challenge that was, um, with fruit in it, they would give people the strawberries and peaches and, and raspberries. They gave her fig. She said, fig. I, she said, I didn't even know what a fig was. And so she <laughs> kept getting assignments like that where she felt maybe she couldn't shine as much. And then the, and, and they pretty much figured out what was going on. And so by the end, the winners were selected and then it was who everybody thought it would be. But she said the, um, the, the, the judges came to her and apologized because they said they felt she was actually the best by far. And, um, but they felt the winners, that team was more relatable. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah. I don't and I don't that. know what that means because she was charming and delightful and witty. And um, anyway, so when you, when you go to Alani, all the baked goods and all that, they come out of her kitchen. They're great. And they had just for the first time, you know, like at Disney, Walt Disney World at Easter, you know, they have those wonderful decorated sugar cookies. Yep. They did that for the first time at Alani. And they were excellent. My friends had bought them because they were on sale during the week of Easter. And I came the week after. Um, they saved me some. They were delicious. Mm. And so she was asking, you know, please let people know that you really enjoyed those cookies because we wanted to keep doing this for the holidays. The that way the so parks nice. do. Yeah. I'd love to see what they do for for Christmas time. I know it would be fun, and 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 it all had and you know some of the designs had a little Hawaiian theme <laughs> to them with maybe the the flowers that were on the little Easter eggs, you know, stuff Easter egg cookies and stuff. So it was great. So an, another one we did was poke and sake, and boy, I learned everything there is to know about tuna, and then um, and then they. They, uh, and then the sake, I don't know what you'd call master wasn't there. So the, the chef or the cook was excellent, really good presenter, really personable guy. He, um, filled us in on sake. I didn't know I liked sake. I like sake. <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> <At least what laughs> <they served. laughs> I don't think I've ever tasted it. Is it, it a good it, taste or you just liked the feeling of it? No, it was a good taste. It went down really smooth. We had, I know I've had hot sake before. I think I might have had it at Epcot in Japan mm. in a Japanese pavilion. That makes and, sense. Too. Um, but, uh, but this was cold sake, which was great on the warm tropical day. But then what we did, and he, so he showed us about making the poke and the, um, 
I don't know what you would call the the sauce, whatever the glaze, whatever you you put on it. And so we, um, so he talked about that, and then we got again we got recipe cards, and then we got to make our own. They brought out like it looked like a bento bowl kind of thing, bento box, and it was everything to make your own poke, Ooh. and it was delicious. Now. Both of these classes also, because they're not inexpensive, you got gifts. With the um, macaron and mimosa one, we got a um, not only a, a, a Walt Disney World, it almost looked like it was the it was a DVC um, macaron, Mickey Mouse shaped macaron. It had the little DVC emblem on it, the little world, That's the cute. blue globe. But we got these beautiful orange embroidered aprons that said Alani mm-hmm. on it. Oh, and all that. And these are nice, good, heavy material and all that. So they didn't skimp on this for the, um, for the poke and sake one. We were given an Alani sake bottle and it's an, it's, it's brownish and it has the Alani, you know, logo on it and then a little sake cup. That's adorable. Big, yeah. like that you could. Was yeah. it hard to get on the plane yeah. or tiny? No, it wasn't big. It was, it was, it, I, I put it in my carry on. It was fine. It was in a box and all that. But um, so their gifts are really nice that you get to take home. And I haven't Very posted nice. all my photos yet of all that. But that was some of the stuff we did. We did the luau. That was a lot of fun. And yeah, we missed that. really well done. And, and worth the price, I felt, for the amount of food and open It bar. sells out. Fairly quickly. It does. We only got in because there were cancellations. So, and the same thing with some of the other classes too. You have to, everything's on the app now and you got to be really savvy with that app because everything fills up. We, and we did an animation class, learned how to animate or um, a drawing class. We drew. You really did have a good time. I can tell how you're talking about it. We did. It was wonderful. Lounged on the beach. I'm disappointed the adult pool is gone. It's now oh, that's right. open to everybody. I I think they should bring that back. Delta should have one place, you know, in there. And then um and then we did and then we went out and about. You know, we went to North Shore, we did a few things. We went to this because I wanted to see a botanical garden. We did this gorgeous botanical garden where it's it's not far, it's like a, a mile hike altogether. There's a decent hill. And um and it ends at a waterfall. And then people go swimming in this waterfall. Now, this is mountain-fed, this waterfall. I can't imagine how cold that was. But people were in I there. I <laughs> think we did do that. It, it was a complete uphill thing, hike. Yeah. And then you saw the waterfall and had to come back down. But there was a golf cart if you wanted to come back down. Yes, you're right. You're okay, right. yes, we because did Because remember, there's one hill that went up and then it went down. but And it was steep. Yes. And then going back up again. Yes. I, wa- I managed to walk it. Without you know collapsing, so, yes. <laughs> but um, we we all yeah. got there, but took the the thing back because yeah. we joked around. They're trying to kill us. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think that's a wise a wise move. There, the trees but were amazing. Gorgeous. I remember. Yes, the trees were like seventy feet up, even more. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're having problems because these beetles or something from China or somewhere are coming in, and they're they eat at the heart of like the palm trees and stuff like that oh. and it's destroying them so they're trying to get a handle on that it's one of many reasons why they're so strict with you know 
they x-ray you for food and plants and all that at the airport and everything. So, um, so that's a big concern for them. So there, but I had a wonderful time, absolutely wonderful time. I want to make it a regular thing to go to Alani if, if I can. I don't know if it'd be every year, but you know, close. Every other year is good. Yeah. Have you seen, since we're talking about films, have you seen the trailer for what's supposed to be the, the hundredth, you know, for the hundredth anniversary um, wish? I did. What did you and think of it? I was pleasantly surprised with that one. I thought the style was different. Very kind of different. A, right, the blend of 2D and 3D. Mm-hmm. But I liked the music and I liked what I saw. I was, I, as opposed to when I saw Elemental and didn't like it, mm-hmm. this was a big departure for me. And I thought, ooh, I like the name. I like the look of it. And I like the sound so far. So, yeah, I, what did you think? I, I liked it. I, it didn't wow me. I liked it. I I was trying to get my handle on the style because I know they've talked about this is a different style for them. And at first I thought the characters looked a little flat. Yes, they um, did. They were, not, they were. Not a lot of detail. And I thought, but you know, hand-drawn animation was very similar to that in many ways. I think we've come, you know, they, 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 they're such, do such a good job now with, with, um, you know, with digital animation that they can, put so much detail and expression in their faces. I think we've become used to that. And we don't remember Snow White, Cinderella, Peter Pan, and that style now. And I think it's hearkening back to that style. Yep. So once I worked that out in my head, I appreciated the trailer a lot more. I was happy that we seem to have a real villain again. Mm-hmm. This King Magnifico or whoever he is, I, I saw, okay, you know, there's going to be a good story here, I think. Yeah, and, and I did laugh with the pony or whatever is the, the goat. A goat? I think it's a goat. Or, I, for, I don't know whose voice it is, but oh, I don't know. Was it? Um, Alan starts with a T, his last name. Is I it know. Tudic? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Because it sounded like Captain Jean-Luc Picard to me, uh, <laughs> Patrick Stewart. But I, Alan Tudor can do those voices. But I thought it was very funny in the trailer when he you know, he says, well, the magic didn't happen. And then I realized, oh, he's talking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. I thought that was cute, actually. <laughs> yeah. So so I'm looking forward to that film. I, I, I hope it's a success. Me too. For them. And, and, and I, I like the princess films, so – me too. I, I'm sort of glad they're doing that. Although I they, like the they classic. They need to go back and do another strong, strong male one for the little boys. You know, Agreed. like Peter Pan. You yep. know, something that they can do. So you know, and something original. You know, something original. This mm-hmm. is nice that we're getting something that's not a remake or a part two. Yeah, and and it's t- and it's not based on um, another fairy tale or something. So, yep. so I really hope it succeeds. Because again, you know, all us Disney fans, that's what we complain about. They rehash the things. They, they're making sequel after sequels. So I'm just hoping something original does well. Agree. You know, and succeeds. Well, I used several books and articles in re- researching this episode, including the book Pinocchio, the making of the Disney epic by J.B. Kaufman. This is an exhaustive account of, of Pinocchio. In there, and it's very well done. Also, uh, last Saturday, I was at the Walt Disney Family Museum for a presentation, and so I went in and looked at their ex- their display on Pinocchio. So I, that, I did use that as a reference. They have a lot of 
of original art, uh, cells. They have the maquettes there. They have a book that I have that w- of Pinocchio that was made in 1939. And, um, and then they have interviews. They have Walt talking about Pinocchio you can listen to. And they have, um, in, like Ward Kimball is another one. I can't remember who the other person is. These are, but they talk about their experiences on Pinocchio. So, um, so well, another reason to visit the museum. Also, some um, articles and websites that I um, use for my research: the real Pinocchio and the and the Disney Pinocchio on Storynori.com. Walt Disney's 1940 classic Pinocchio, um, written by the Daily Mail. The real story of Pinocchio tells no lies. This was in Smithsonian Magazine. Walt Disney's Pinocchio by Charles Silver. The Twisted History of Pinocchio on Screen by Cindy White. The History of Disney Animation, Pinocchio by CVD History and Museums. The Impact of Jiminy Cricket on the Walt Disney Company. That's by the Disney Classics website. Pinocchio Imperiled by Termite by the Disney's Dream Makers. <laughs> the original Pinocchio was Too Evil for Disney by Carl Seaver. How Pinocchio Set the Standard for Feature Animation by Genevieve Kosky. And The Untold Truth of Pinocchio by Sarah Butterian. And, um, and of course, Craig always includes these in the, in the show notes um, here so that you can take a look at them now. Uh, and so, John, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? If they go to bigfatpanda.com, it goes right to my YouTube channel. Otherwise, for now, they could still see me on the Diz Unplugged and certain uh, dvcfan.com, dclfan.com, those YouTube channels. And you can send me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com, Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook on michaelbowling-connectingwithwalt, Instagram on michaelbowlingthediz, and you can connect with me, Craig, and John on Twitter at connectingwalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives by Disney History Episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or disneyplug.com. Look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon Podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs> <laughs>